President-elect-elect elect, and President-elect and immediate past president and past presidents numerous, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. It uh, may seem strange to some that a Handley Page memorial lecture is devoted to just a few extracts from the life of Alan Cobham. I could, of course, claim broad lateral thinking as my reason for this apparent anomaly. I could and will make some attempt to link the two great names together, but in fact, uh, this lecture on Cobham's Flying Circus was already in being, having been presented to the Christchurch branch of the Society last October. And some misguided souls claimed to wish to see it transferred to the broader stage at Hamilton Place, and who was I to argue? So in effect you are this evening getting two aviation pioneers for the price of one. Uh, first of all, uh, a rather brief nod in the direction of the great Sir Frederick Handley Page, up there behind me. I have no doubt that over the years since this memorial lecture was first staged, the Society has heard time and again of the unique place which HP held in the nation's aviation history. Roger Austin has already outlined some of that. But rereading Kevin Desmond's articles in Aerospace Monthly, they appeared about 10 or 11 years ago now, I was struck by the immense breadth of Sir Frederick's involvement in the then burgeoning world of aviation. As engineer, designer, manufacturer, and entrepreneur, his talent for the innovative was almost unparalleled. Uh, and in the age of <coughs> Rowe, Hawker, Sopwith, Rolls, Mitchell, Cam, Brabazon, Ferry, Graham White, and I would add Alan Cobham, there was a lot of competition out there. My own involvement with HP's products was confined to the Hastings, which I flew as a co-pilot during national service in the mid-1950s. How could a man so young have been flying in the mid-1950s, I hear you cry. <laughs> and the Victor Tanker during my time as Aeros Commanding Number One Group. Alan Cobham's involvement was rather more focused. Uh, they were probably never particularly close. At one time, both men had their own airlines. I never did, yet. Uh, but Philip Meeson does. Well done. And both of them sold out to Imperial Airways. Handley Page Transport, together with Instant Airlines and Daimler Airways, helping to found the new airline in 1924, and Cobham-Blackburn Airlines being merged with Imperial in 1930. However, Cobham himself made full use of HP's products, and a cursory count reveals the Handley Page W10 and the Clive, used in the Flying Circus, of which more later. The W10, again, the Hayford, and the Harrow for early air-to-air -air refueling trials. The Halifax, used extensively for de-icing development and fuel trials, where an order for pressure refueling equipment at the end of 1946 virtually saved Flight Refueling Limited from the receiver. There's a nice little story about that, uh, representing yet another slice of the famed Cobham luck. The company had little or no production. It was uh, really bad times for them, but Cobham retained his faith in the future, and for that reason he didn't want to lose any of the 48, that was all, key personnel, which was by then his total workforce. With customary style, he decided to keep their spirits up with a fancy dress dance at the Beach Hotel Little Hampton, known to many of us, I'm sure. Just before midnight, the news came that the Hastings order had at last been placed for the then, the then fairly hefty total of £29,000. Alan Cobham believed that this was a truly definitive moment in the history of the company and that it never looked back from that date and within two or three years he was employing over a thousand people. And then the Victor, which in its air-to-air -air refueling role was the very backbone of that force in the Royal Air Force, and indeed its only component at the time of the outbreak of hostilities in the South Atlantic in 1982. There are odd snippets of correspondence between the two great men which showed a certain mutual respect developing over the years, when all the great and good of the nation's <clears throat> aviation hierarchy were gathered to commemorate the 30th anniversary of Cobham's 1926 return flight to Australia. The toast was proposed by Sir Frederick Handy Page, and the response, <clears throat> naturally enough, I suppose, after all it was his due, was by Sir Alan Cobham. There's just one other little gem which connects Cobham with Handy Page. As many of you may know, HP was a great quota from the Bible, a consequence, no doubt, of his family's long association with the Plymouth Brethren. When, towards the end of the last war, the Cobhams were entertaining the Handley Pages and others to dinner, 
H.P. was reputed to be in great form, and he fired off a biblical quotation which landed in the general direction of Cobham's butler, one Owens. Unbeknown to him, Owens was the son of a professor of Greek and had been a chorister at Oxford. <coughs> and his own biblical knowledge compared very fact we only employ the best people in Cobham, of course. <laughs> Biblical knowledge compared very favorably with that of H.P. himself, and he was able to offer an immediate counter with another quotation from the good book. So Frederick took up the challenge, and apparently for about five or six minutes, quotations flowed fresh freely back and forth. According to Cobham, Owens won. And Lady Handley Page roared with laughter to think that her old man had been seen off and what had become his own platform. As an aside, I might add that a strong religious conviction uh, and a propensity, it was a propensity he shared with a th another formidable titan in the, air, in the aeronautical world, Sir James Martin, who also continually surprised colleagues with his deep knowledge of the Bible. We were pleased to hear that I do not share that knowledge. I cannot compete, but then that's what comes of not being an aviation titan. So let's get on to the story in just one facet of the life of a man whose company I'm now very proud to be chairman. My aim tonight is to feature a three-and-a-half-year period in the career of this remarkable man, during which he brought the excitement and glamour, the challenges <clears throat> and enthusiasms, the thrills and spills of aviation to literally millions of people throughout the land. There will not be many of my sort of vintage and a year or two older who cannot recall the first awakening to that third dimension of the air in a local visit by what became popularly known as Sir Alan Cobham's Flying Circus which he himself referred to rather less dramatically as National Aviation Days. I know we have at least two in this audience, the other being an indomitable lady, Mrs. Esmeralda Russell, who has actually traveled all the way from Edinburgh to be here this evening. She can answer some questions afterwards, too. <laughs> I think that's beyond the call, Mrs. Russell, but I suppose anything to get away from Murrayfield next Saturday. Now, <coughs> <laughs> is that politically incorrect as well? No ethnic jokes tonight, right, okay. As an example of just one other among those millions, let me relate my own slightly hazy memory of the events of the time. Slightly hazy because it was all related to me by a proud father who was often heard to explain to his friends and acquaintances and anyone else who cared to listen, and there weren't many of those, why it was that his son, destined, if anything, for a dusty career in academe, chose rather to devote what eventually became 46 years and counting to aviation. It had all started, he would recall, when he took me to see Sir Alan Cobham's Flying Circus on a visit to my hometown in the North Staffordshire Moorlands. I had, he would go on, become very excited by the spectacle and there and then expressed the determination to have a part of the action, although I don't suppose that was quite the way he put it. Well, it may all have been true, certainly I came to believe in it. I even conjured up the scene at Birchall Field when those Daring young men, and women as well, even in those days, arrived to thrill us all. But if the rest of the story was to be believed, I must have been more precocious than even my best friends would credit. It was indeed only when I came to study the appendices to Alan Cobham's marvelously evocative book, A Time to Fly, that I discovered that the only recorded visit by the circus to Leek in Staffordshire was in April 1934, and I was 17 months old at the time. <laughs> well... Believe it if you like, I'm still perfectly prepared to do so, if others will, and it does at least give you an idea of the impact of Sir Alan Cobham and his aviators on a whole generation of British youth. Uh, fortunately, there is no shortage of rich material associated with this remarkable man, and so this evening I want to dwell on that other period in the early 30s when his, with his team of flyers and stuntmen, he traveled the length and breadth not only of the British Isles, but also of South Africa thrilling the crowds wherever he went with those National Aviation Day displays. I think that's the team of flyers. To understand how the tours came into being and why his achieved more popularity than those of several contemporaries, we need to examine the way in which aviation was generally regarded at the time and also the character of Alan Cobham himself. At the end of World War I, not only was there a ready supply of surplus military aircraft, but uh, some, the Avro 504Ks, for example, were capable of being crudely modified to carry passengers. There were, of course, also many ex-service pilots, Cobham among them, who had become thoroughly enamored of the business of flying. And it's scarcely surprising that the joyriding operations mushroomed all over the place, about 50 in all in this country. Initially, business boomed, 
and Cobham, in partnership with Fred and Jack Holmes, formed the Berkshire Aviation Tour Company, which carried some 5,000 would-be aviators in the latter half of 1919. In fact, they would fly anything, provided it paid the acceptable five bob. The following year, it was decided to try running two separate tours, but adverse weather kept the five Avros on the ground for such a long time that Cobham was forced to withdraw his rapidly dwindling assets. Although a few companies survived this early boom and bust period, most of them simply ceased to operate through inadequate financing or general lack of resources, poor management, and as often as not, a trail of crashed aircraft. Apart from the aspect of cash flow, those problems were certainly not Cobham's. Also relevant was the fact that by his own admission, he had the luck of 10 men. And at the as the 20s progressed, he began to make a name for himself with the de Havilland Aeroplane Hire Company, undertaking um, charter and test flying, and the pioneering of air routes to India and Burma, South Africa, and most famously to Australia. And it was this latter venture which marked the first return flight to the Antipodes, using the same aircraft and engine. A feat culminating in that famous Thames landing, witnessed incidentally by a crowd estimated as being well over a million, and as an almost immediate and totally appropriate result of which he was appointed a Knight Commander of the British Empire. But fame does not always breed friends, and Sir Alan's position as a mere, note the word mere, de Havilland employee, became increasingly incompatible with his newfound status as a national celebrity. Certain members of the de Havilland board considered that Cobham's fame was uh, obscuring the interests of the company. And faced with this, he left de Havilland's in 1927 to form Allen Cobham Aviation Limited with offices in New Bond Street. So he always did it right. And he shared those offices with an up-and-coming young racing car designer named Malcolm Campbell. It's a pretty powerful and exciting combination you'll allow, and one which points up again the great synergy between those great burgeoning industries, aviation and motoring. It was under the banner of Alan Cobham Aviation that our hero decided to instill a sense of air-mindedness in a population that had, by and large, never seen an aeroplane, let alone touch or fly in, it, in one, as he said himself on that film clip. Horses, rather than horsepower, was still a much more regular feature of everyday working life. And Cobham was actually much into both, in the nicest possible way, of course. Now, in 1929, Sir Alan, accompanied by a small support team, set off in a 10-seater DH-61 moth, giant moth, appropriately named Youth of Britain, to tour the country in what he called his municipal aerodrome campaign. Over a 21-week period, he took aloft some 50,000 people, including 10,000 schoolchildren, all trying to get on the same aircraft, by the way, um, <laughs> whose five-shilling fares were paid for by his long-term patron, Sir Charles Wakefield. Beyond attracting the general public, Cobham also set out to impress on various municipal officials that the new air age had arrived and that it was time for them to get in on the act. He thus succeeded in becoming aerodrome consultant to several major cities and towns, and Liverpool Speak, Leeds, Bradford, and Bournemouth Hearn airports are in fact sited in areas originally recommended by Cobham. However, as with some other of his personal triumphs, the Municipal Aerodrome campaign proved to be only a partial success when set against the broader aviation canvas. With the RAF so woefully underfunded, little interest, enthusiasm, or money could be raised in support of a civil network, and the sudden awakening for which Cobham had hoped just did not occur. He was, however, a man of fierce determination, and when thwarted by officialdom, over what seemed to him a wholly natural development in transportation with fortunes to be made for entrepreneurs like himself uh, who were willing to take a chance. His intentions took on the mantle of a veritable crusade. As he later wrote, I wanted to make Britain air-minded to take aviation to the people. Turning his customarily shrewd eye to the situation, he decided in 1931 that in order to attract the public's attention Aviation needed a day devoted to it. As he put it, and I quote, embedded into the public consciousness as deeply as Pancake Tuesday or Firework Night. 
Whilst the idea of a National Aviation Day had its attractions, he quickly realized that he couldn't be everywhere at once, and he set about recruiting a team of pilots and ground support personnel with the aim of taking his people, taking the display to the people, um, uh, to a people virtually contained within range of bus or bicycle. And in 1932, they undertook their first nationwide tour. In fact, Sir Alan was not literally the first to promote a traveling air show. In 1931, a friendly rival, Captain C.D. Barnard, had laid claim to that distinction by offering his world's first air circus, a title which incidentally might have been disputed by one or two Americans. In any case, this operation has now all but completely faded from memory, along with Cornwall Aviation's Flying Circus, Dalton's Air Circus, the so-called British Hospital's Air Pageant, CWA Scots Flying for All, each of which had enjoyed a measure of transient popularity. Just as, as today, the names of Spitfire and Lancaster respectively have come to represent all types of World War II fighter and bombers, so the Cobham Air Display was always regarded as the show that set the standards which others sought to emulate. So Alan drew up a mandate for British aviation, which everyone was urged to sign. Such august bodies as the Royal Aeronautical Society, naturally, the then Air League of the British Empire, of course, and who here tonight is not a member of that great organization? Eddie Cox will provide you with forms as you leave. And the British Gliding Association each contributed a clause to the mandate, and the Automobile Association added an appeal to landowners for the compilation of a list of suitable landing sites. Two model aircraft societies appealed for support and asked local education authorities to introduce the teaching of aeronautics in their schools. Sir Alan Cobham said that when he collected a million signatures, he would, quote, place the mandate before the proper authorities to impress on them the degree of public support for a progressive policy towards civil aviation. Now, he knew that for his operation to succeed and for Britain's skyways to become Britain's highways, he had to design a show that would appeal to the man in the street, be safe, yet exciting, and above all, entertaining. Clearly, it also had to pay its way, and with the country still feeling its way out of the effects of the Depression, he faced a public that was still highly reluctant to part with its cash. To most people, the cost of a flight, which started at four shillings, represented a fortune. But though, though probably lasting no more than a minute, it was nevertheless a uh, supreme venture into an unnatural and exciting environment. And the National Aviation Day displays promised an experience that would be fondly, indeed excitedly, remembered for a very long time. In later years, Cobham proudly recalled that when asked if they had ever flown before, some 75% of the young men volunteering to become RAF aircrew in World War II <coughs> would reply, yes, with Cobham's Flying Circus. Now, as I've already hinted, Sir Alan Cobham greatly disliked the term flying circus. He woe betide any employee who ever mentioned those words in his presence. He was a professional to the core, and he considered that the words demeaned his goal of imbuing the, the nation with the spirit of aviation. But he came to accept that it was an unwinnable battle to try and change an image fondly held by the public and media alike. Flying circus was clearly a concept that was here to, to stay. Sense now, if you will, as Sir Alan makes his opening announcement. The smell of warmed grass, warm grass, doped fabric, leather, and petrol blend together and waft through the air as the Larone rotary engine in a weather-beaten old Avro 504K fires up. The circus is in town, bringing with it all the thrills of aerobatics, wing walking, parachute descents, upside-down flying, as they called inverted flying in those days, the whole lot preceded by a grand formation flight and fly past of all the Cobham air aircraft led by a real airliner in which you might yourself later fly. And what on earth is that strange contraption tagging along behind? An autogyro, you say? Never seen anything like that before. Eager anticipation, great excitement for young and old alike, and a scene typical of what would be provided at nearly a thousand locations in the British Isles and well over 70 in South Africa over the touring years of 1932 to 35. And what about the effort that preceded the tours? Cobham and Dallas Eskel, the center here, who had managed his aerodrome campaign in 1929, had arranged for teams to crisscross the country 
during the winter months in search of suitable sites for the show. I don't think that was actually a suitable site, but it's an amusing picture. All of which <laughs> had to be approved by the Air Ministry. Meticulous preparation was all, and the seemingly endless arrangements included seasonal discussions with the proprietors of another circus, that of Messrs. Bertram Mills, in order to avoid competing attractions being mounted simultaneously in the same place. Much effort was also spent in bargaining with local farmers for hedges to be cut, trees to be felled, and land to be prepared well in advance of the arrival of the circus. All too often, however, when the advanced ground party arrived to set up the aircrafts for the aircraft's arrival the following day, it was to find that prior arrangements had either been forgotten or ignored. It sometimes transpired that the area's earmarked for landings and takeoffs included partially ploughed fields, where it was necessary for the aircraft's wheels to run down the furrows. And on at least one occasion, takeoffs required the airliner pilot to negotiate a 90-degree bend halfway down his run permission to carry on round the bend being given by a ground assistant waving a green flag. Full of high hopes and enormous enthusiasm, the first tour got underway in April 1932. Pilots recruited through Captain Lamplew of British Aviation Insurance joined up with Cobham's hand-picked team of ground engineers at Hanworth. The aircraft included the brand-new 10-seater ferry, specially designed and built to Cobham's specification by his colleague and fellow director, Neville Shute, at airspeeds of York. In its first three months of operation, this aircraft alone made 3,600 landings, presumably takeoffs too, and carried 36,000 passengers, with turnarounds typically of less than 30 seconds. Uh, also included were an ex-Imperial Airways Handley Page W10, which I've mentioned, and uh, a Tiger Moth specially modified for prolonged inverted flight, of which that is not a, an example. Uh, gypsy Moths, a Fox Moth, lovely aeroplane. A Compass Swift, an Avro 504s belonging to Cobham, Fred Holmes of Air Travel, and Captain Percival Phillips of the Cornwall Aviation Company. Very interesting gent. And that formed part of the National Air Day on a percentage basis. The Theva C-19 Autogyro was undoubtedly the greatest curiosity wherever the display was held, and not only for its novel appearance. Finely balanced, even on a level surface, the machine tended to become dynamically unstable if operated from uneven ground. And on more than one dramatic occasion, the pilot had to compress himself into the tiny cockpit as the whirling blades and fuselage disintegrated in what became known as the Dance of Death. Cobham himself, always on the move in his capacity as ringmaster, flew a DH-9. In addition to the powered aircraft, Joan Meakin brought her Wolf glider, and Ivor Price was regarded as the most accomplished of the several parachutists, who at various times also became part of the team. The types of aircraft used varied over the four-year touring period, but later additions to the regular fleet were a trio of Avro cadets, a pair of Blackburn Lincocks, and a Handley Page Clive. Great attention was given to advanced publicity, and posters and handbills were produced by the thousand and, and distributed at every display location. Firstly, six weeks ahead of the event, again three weeks, and in a final flurry of fly posting immediately before the day. A key figure in the advance work was a man called the Arrow Man, who attached arrows pointing the way to the show, to the lamp posts, telegraph poles, and the like. He was often assisted by a young lad whose job it was to ascend any tricky supports and to fix the arrows before the displays and cut them down afterwards for use at the next show. During his summer holes, an eight-year-old Michael Cobham often carried out these assistance tasks, where he tells me he specialized in the cutting down bit. However, when I first delivered this lecture with him present, he elected not to treat the audience to a live demonstration of his ancient skills. <laughs> As an example of the detail into which uh, the whole thing was organized, I, I great friend and collaborator on this, Colin Craddus, she brought me today an original invitation which says, President, Chairman, and members of the Executive Committee of the Air League of the British Empire, in conjunction with Alan Cobham, request the President, and this was uh, a show at Heston Airport, and as an example, on the back of the ticket, to reach the airport by road, turn right half a mile past the Ace of Spades garage, 
coming from London on the Great West Road, the route is generously signposted. By train booked to Hounslow West on the District Railway, thence by bus to junction of Vicarage Farm Lane and Cranford Lane. So they didn't miss a trick. Um, a wholly nomadic existence required a complete movement of Cobham's encampment virtually every day, over distances which, which usually varied between 50, well, probably less, actually, maybe 30 and 70 miles. 50 was the average. Even today, this would be considered a major exercise in pure logistics, and taking into account the problems posed by the limited road network of the day and the questionable reliability of transport and general communications, the unfailing high level of support provided for the National Aviation Days was in itself a truly amazing achievement. Again, typical of the originator and leader. The staff engaged on general duties would travel in an assortment of cars and lorries, but Sir Alan always insisted, wise man, that the licensed ground engineers flew to the next destination in the aircraft they had themselves maintained. <laughs> and that is as good a guarantee as any I know of some pretty conscientious maintenance work. In 1932 and again in 1934, the display was featured at well over 150 separate locations, but in 1933 and 35, this number rose considerably when Cobham split the team to provide two tours operating concurrently at different ends of the country. And uh, you may have picked up one of the copies of the lists of places uh, to which they went. Such constant upheavals obviously placed a strain on the stamina of all concerned, and Sir Alan's patience was known to falter if the high standards he determined were not met. Often preoccupied with a myriad other details, he'd deliver a blistering dressing down to anyone, regardless of uh, seniority, if he thought some shortcoming warranted it. This frequently happened with an earshot of the crowd, who in registering their obvious amusement added greatly to the discomfort of the unfortunate recipient. Yet, summarizing his first year's operations, Cobham wrote, this was a heroic and happy period for all of us, full of challenge and difficulty, not without moments of danger and even tragedy, calling for total dedication and meticulous teamwork and more rewarding than I can possibly suggest. The ground staff worked under continuous pressure and had to load passengers as quickly as possible. George Lloyd, assisting in the loading of Sir Alan's airspeed ferry, claimed a world record of 21 seconds. The average was 30. 21 seconds for getting 10 passengers out and another 10 in. <laughs> Can't do that on Cathay. Okay. Yeah. There's certainly no time for the emergency brief or leave <laughs> to show them how to fasten their seatbelts. The whole setup was guaranteed to produce a cast of very colourful characters, both on the ground and in the air. And so it did. The programme seller, George Kit Ketchell, along with his brother Cecil, were a classic case in point. He used to shout programs at ten or each, two for a bob. And his chief, chief pilot, Hugh Johnson, reckoned that Ketchell's income, greatly augmented by uh, distracting the customers whilst giving, giving them a short change, uh, well exceeded that of the flying staff. One story suggests that he tried to trick the trick on the chief constable in Sheffield. And on being accused of handing back an improper amount, pointed to some coins on the ground which he'd surreptitiously allowed to trickle from his own hand which allowed him ever so tactfully to admonish the suspicious copper for lack of care. <laughs> Incidentally, Ketchell's wife, besides being an accomplished wreath maker, <laughs> useful, useful talent actually in those days, also held an East End record for reputedly drinking 22 pints of Guinness. It's difficult to believe, even for Roger and I. 20 pints, two, 22 pints of Guinness without having moved from the bar. At least I can understand that bit. Um, <laughs> but where, oh, where is her like today? <laughs> However, she was not alone in the circus. Mrs. Winifred Crossley, who's slightly blurred there, not surprisingly, when you hear, <laughs> she was from the Cornwall Aviation Company, which for a time toured with Cobham, was billed as the only woman aerobatic pilot in Britain. However, an equally arresting claim to fame lay in her assertion that she found a Guinness a day helped to withstand the strain of aerobatics. And she had a genuine medical certificate to support that claim. That's, that's initiative for you, isn't it? There was obviously a degree of healthy rivalry between the Cobham employees and those of their colleagues from the Duchy, and it didn't always work as well as it might. At Harrogate on the 5th of October 1932, Captain Crundle 
remember the name. A temporary replacement, I hope he's here this, not here this evening. A temporary replacement for the Cornwall Aviation Company's Captain Phillips, who had apparently hurt his arm on the giant racer at Blackpool the previous weekend. <laughs> anyway, the aforementioned Crandall in Avro Golf Alpha Alpha uniform, Juliet was, quote, unable to recover from three spins started at a height of 1,500 feet. Seems the aircraft had almost regained level flight at about 50 feet, but was still diving sideways and hit the ground. Amazingly, the aircraft was carrying two passengers, one of whom was killed, as a matter of some historical interest, despite the attentions of one Dr. Norway, whom I've already referred to as Neville Shute, Cobham's good friend, aircraft airship designer and later novelist. The pilot, the dreaded Crundle, and the other passenger were not seriously hurt. In fact, the latter got up and ran away from the scene, which was a bit suspicious in itself. At the subsequent inquest, Crundle said that he never began his loops at less than 200 feet, AGL. And he gave it as his opinion that spinning might be regarded as a dangerous maneuver. As a further sign of the times, the inquest jury returned a verdict of accidental death and exonerated the pilot, who incidentally later became a wing commander. However, the, <laughs> jury, the jury added a rider to the effect that Air Ministry instructions regarding seat belts were too vague. Although it was compulsory for them to be fitted, few passengers considered wearing them, and little was done to encourage them to do so. As the tours progressed, Cobham tried to devise new ways of beating the sizable numbers of people who had avoided paying the admission fee of one and threepence. A screening team had the difficult job of trying to erect sections of canvas mounted on poles around the main show area, but clearly it was impossible to cover the whole perimeter. And if that were not enough, innumerable small boys cut slits in the screens and poked their heads through, while others, dismissively referred to as hedge guests by Sir Alan, gathered in their hundreds to form the so-called Aberdeen Grandstand. <laughs> another, another ethnic reference, which <laughs> nothing to do with me, blame Cobham. Anyway, on one occasion, he asked a young member of the ground staff, Terry O'Brien, to get his three-wheel motorbike and aim it straight at the crowd which was a dispersal tactic, which went, nearly went disastrously wrong, when O'Brien, steering as director, was surprised to see people beginning to throw themselves flat on the ground instead of moving briskly sideways. Looking over his shoulder, <laughs> he nearly fainted with fright. The side of the Avro 504, right behind him at ground level, also flying towards the, the, the crowd. The pilot, Jock Mackay, obviously totally unaware of O'Brien's presence, so much so that his undercarriage hit the motorbike and ripped off the brake lever and cable. Miraculously, O'Brien lived to tell the tale. I mean, as for display, not display flying towards spectators, <laughs> forget it. At the start of the first tour, Eddie Fielden was regarded as chief pilot, but he had a series of careless uh, incidents which culminated in the crash of the second airspeed ferry uh, just after delivery, and that clearly attracted the attention of Sir Alan and so Phelan was fired and replaced by Hugh Johnson, shown here on the left. What a couth chap and what lovely kit. <laughs> I do like that. Charles Turner Hughes was the main aerobatic pilot, but when he left the Cobham team in 1933 to become a test pilot with Armstrong Whitworth aircraft, the starring role was taken over by Geoffrey Tyson, who himself was to become a test pilot, notably associated with the great uh, giant Saunders Row Princess flying boat during the early 50s. Tyson developed inverted flying into a fine art, and his upside-down runs over the enclosure at 50 feet were guaranteed to engage the crowd's attention, as indeed was his precisely judged feat of picking up handkerchiefs from the ground with prongs fitted to the wingtips of his tiger moth. Another popular maneuver involved flying under a pennant festooned crosswire, which was stretched between two poles, placed not much further apart than the aircraft's wingspan, Tyson would then bring the tiger up into a loop before diving steeply and flying through the post for a second time. This stunt undoubtedly called for split-second judgment. It elicited, elicited the following from Flight Magazine, quote, he is, a very, he is very accurate indeed, but takes, one feels, undue risks in his desire to give the public a good show. Fairly mild comment, I think, in the circumstances. In 1934, to commemorate the 25th anniversary of Blériot's crossing of the Channel, Tyson flew across the same strip of water upside down. 
However, it proved difficult to retain a proper orientation. And it was necessary for Sir Alan to fly alongside to shepherd him in the right direction. There was considerable alarm when, upon landing, it was discovered that the whites of Tyson's eyes had turned bright scarlet. Several days' rest were prescribed before he was allowed to resume flying. <laughs> Cobham's programs included height and speed judging competitions, exhibitions of model aircraft, wing walking, aerial pig sticking of balloons, crazy flying, pylon racing, in which the public all too often took part as passengers. It's incredible, isn't it? And the inevitable surprise item, which according to the posters and advanced publicity, quote, will come without warning and we hope the spectators will enjoy it. One show they certainly did, for after a couple of aerobatics, an aircraft landed, ground looped, and ran into several official cars and a tent. <laughs> the public, keyed up for the surprise item, let out a huge cheer and applauded wildly at this totally <laughs> unexpected event. In view of the tight safety measures which attend today's air spectaculars, it is perhaps surprising that more accidents didn't occur during the, two, the touring years, especially among the passengers, who seemed to be totally oblivious to the danger of whirling propellers and would often rush forward to thank the pilot for their flight. <laughs> Inevitably, accidents did happen. On one occasion in 1933, when on tour in Ireland, a local flyer tried to formate on Geoffrey Tyson's Foxmoth, but he misjudged his distance and succeeded only in causing his own crash and death. Fortunately, Tyson managed to land safely, although his undercarriage had been completely demolished. Even more sadly, during a show at Leeds, two small boys were killed when, despite frequent warnings, they cycled out under the HP W-10 as it was landing, with Hugh Johnson at the controls. A headstone, I think Mrs. Kettrell probably made the wreath, but anyway, a headstone erected in Beckett Street Cemetery by the parents of one of the boys records, in memory of Fred, aged 12, who was killed instantly by an airliner owned by Sir Richard Cobham. That was luck for you and piloted by Flight Lieutenant Johnson. And among, among the more bizarre incidents, one which is likely to remain forever a mystery, uh, was the crash which claimed the lives of a pilot named Lawson and his passenger, the show's announcer, Ross. That's not uh, T.E. Lawrence, but the other one. At the very end of Cobham's tour of South Africa, which had, as a matter of interest, been in part undertaken to keep the team together during the UK winter, according to Sir Alan's statement, after the tragedy, Lawson, had become depressed over conflicting romantic entanglements and was determined to end both his own life and that of the man whom he believed to have given him the problem in the first place. He is presumed to have deliberately crashed his Avro Tutor into the circle which marked the precise centre of Feinberg Airport near Cape Town. What makes this story plausible is that the clearly demented Lawson had on several occasions remarked that he intended to end the tour with a bang. <laughs> I think that was misunderstood. Anyway, a macabre prophecy that uh, brought to a somber end an otherwise successful, if less than profitable, tour of the Union during the winter of 1932-33. Plans for a later tour to India were abandoned as being just too difficult. Of all the acts which featured on the Cobham programme, probably the most popular was Jock Mackay's pantomime of the flying drunkard. That is, both photographs are of Mr Mackay, in which the pilot, posing as an inebriate with an urge to fly, and there are probably one or two of us in that category in this room, would stagger out from, from the crowd in answer to the announcer's call for a volunteer pupil. They asked, would ask him for his flying papers, he produced sticky fly papers, he'd be assisted aboard an elderly Avro 504, only to fall out on the opposite side. The exasperated instructor would finally lose patience, get out of the aircraft and tell his pupil to do the same. In so doing, he'd conveniently forget to switch off the engine. Mackay would then open the throttle, and the aircraft would take off in a most unorthodox manner, weaving and bumping over the ground with the instructor gesticulating helplessly in the slipstream. Mackay would then make a low-level seesaw pass over the enclosure, during which he would light-heartedly jettison the joystick. <laughs> Fortunately, a dummy provided for the purpose. Uh, before treating his rapt audience to an exhibition of stickless flying, and a variation of this routine called for him to climb out of the aeroplane on the side visible to the crowd and then get back in, only to appear to fall out from the other side. The stunt required Mackay to fix the joystick with rubber cords before he climbed out of the cockpit, and he performed the routine at over 600 displays before 
fate caught up with him at Farnborough in 1934. It seemed that upon re-entering his aeroplane, his leg caught up in the cords, and with little height to correct the resultant dive, he crashed and died that same evening. Not long before one of the fairer sex began to demonstrate her capabilities as an aerobatic pilot, and Joan Meakin became known as the Glider Girl. On days when there were good thermals, she would remain airborne for up to an hour before executing a perfect landing to hearty applause. In 1933, Cobham split the organization in two, with one half under his own direction and the other under Dallas Eskel. Joan Meakin accompanied Cobham's number one tour, and another well-known glider pilot, G.E. Collins, joined the number two tours, but unfortunately not for long. Having been warned by Geoffrey Tyson not to include the outside loop, in his aerial routine, for clearly his machine was not stressed for that sort of thing, he went ahead and performed one, the dreaded bunt, with dire results. As he pulled out, a hideous crack was heard by all below, and the glider's starboard wing broke off. The machine spun in with the inevitable fatal result. During the heyday of the tours, Cobham employed a number of parachutists. Not for them the technically refined equipment used today, not even special boots or helmets. According to Harry Ward, who's still alive, amazingly, who performed some 1,800 jumps for the shows, He's 90-plus, this old boy. He said it was simply a question of slipping a pair of white overalls over your suit, standing on a platform between the biplane's wings, and at a carefully judged height and distance, allowing oneself to be pulled off the wing when the chute opened. Ward was particularly fortunate to survive one drop over Weymouth in 1935, when during his descent, the prop wash from Hugh Johnson's airliner, flying close to afford passengers a decent view, <laughs> blew Ward's parachute inside out, and his subsequent, indeed, precipitate impact with the ground left him with a broken pelvis, shattered ribs, and deep concussion. Concerned about the medical expenses he was incurring in Weymouth General, he asked Sir Alan Cobham if he would cover the cost, to which he reputedly received the response, not likely, that's what I, that's what I pay you two pounds a jump for. Um, and, six, and 16 pounds a week, so push off. However, it was... It was not as uh, it might have seemed. When Ward finally emerged from Weymouth's hospital some three months later, it was to find that Sir Alan had, in fact, taken care of the bill. Actually, the way Colin Crudders heard it, he said, I didn't inquire and nobody asked me for it. <laughs> Other parachutists included one named Stuart, who'd continued to jump with a leg in a plaster cast following an earlier accident. What a trooper, what a trooper. The Honourable Naomi Heron Maxwell, my favourite. She's the one on the right as you look at it. <laughs> Clearly another trooper. What a lovely girl. Anyway, she's shown here with the display administrator, Sammy Sauerbatz. Often, uh, she often accompanied uh, star attraction, Ivor Price. Price was a jumper who paid meticulous attention to his equipment and performance. Perhaps I should have said technical equipment and performance. <laughs> I can't honestly be sure of that. Anyway, it came as a tremendous shock to his colleagues uh, when he fell to his death at Woodford on no less than his 800th jump. Investigations revealed that he'd forgotten to remove a handkerchief which he routinely knotted around the shroud lines when, when folding his chute. A parachute is called Marsden, was another who met an untimely end at Kingston in 1935, the year of the final tour. But unfortunately, he and Price were not the only tragedies on what was ultimately seen as a rather ill-fated sequence. At Blackpool, on almost the last day, a pilot named Carruthers was flying a Westland Wessex, awaiting the other, as the previous Wessex, awaiting uh, the other aircraft to join him for the usual grand formation flypast. Suddenly, like Geoffrey Tyson in Ireland two years earlier, he felt a violent impact from below. An Avro 504N, piloted by Captain Hugh Stewart, and carrying two sisters, Lillian and Doris Barnes, had collided with him. And although Carruthers managed to land the Wessex safely, the Avro broke up in midair over Blackpool's promenade, jam-packed with holidaymakers. One girl was thrown out of the aircraft, and the other, together with the pilot, went in with it. Even more tragically, on the house of a blind man whose day it was obviously not. And sadly, no one survived, as you would imagine. On the face of it, such tours would seem to have thrown up an unacceptable number of fatal accidents. However, however as we've seen, some were brought about by factors totally outside the control of the tour administration. Added to which, with aircraft and indeed show safety requirements still at an incredibly rudimentary stage, it's perhaps remarkable that there were, in fact, so few. One of the more interesting comparisons between the performers of today 
and yesterday involves the art of wing walking. Although not everyone would consider being firmly braced to the top of today's crunchy bar steerman as the safest way to earn a living, consider the amazing antics of Martin Hearn, wing walker extraordinaire who thrilled Cobham's crowds during those early years. Without any restraints at all, he would regularly climb out of the cockpit, thread his way between the struts and wires to sit on the leading edge. He'd also stand on the top wing, relying only on foot stirrups for a grip, and with a single wire held with one hand while waving enthusiastically to the crowd with the other. Shown here at Plymouth in August 1932. He had indeed to be firmly discouraged from performing a loop in this position. <laughs> but he did frequently carry out such maneuvers on an Avro 504 while sitting on the aircraft's undercarriage skid. And if that wasn't pure circus, what was? Well, I'll tell you, the dreaded Hearn had an even more dastardly trick up his sleeve. In the guise of some old yokel or mad professor, he'd answer the call for volunteers from the crowd to do a bit of wing walking. <laughs> Having fooled around for a while in the air, he'd appear to lose his grip and fall to the ground, only to bounce. Of course, what bounced was in reality a rubber dummy suitably pumped up with air while Hearn was crouching low in the cockpit out of sight of the crowd. That was the theory, and indeed for some time the practice, but all good things come to an end. As Sir Alan himself describes it, we were in Dublin. And there are some chilling words for a start, but not last Saturday. Anyway, we were in Dublin, Victor. <laughs> the dummy had not been pumped up properly, and it hit the ground with a soft thud instead of bouncing. People screamed. A priest ran out to give the last sacraments. And one lady had a baby on the spot. <laughs> We decided, says Sir Alan, that this particular trick was in doubtful taste. <laughs> I like that. And we cut it out thereafter, this is amazing, while in Ireland, presumably it was okay back on the mainland. <laughs> but by 1935, the public had in fact become satiated with air displays, and this was being reflected in lower gate receipts. It's also proving difficult to introduce more novel and daring items into the programme. Can you wonder at it? And even the latest long-distance records achieved by flyers throughout the world were having a hard time competing for the headlines, and it was against that background that Sir Alan sold his organisation to CWA Scott, but without the right to use the Cobham name. <coughs> by now, the great pioneer had become absorbed in a problem that he'd often considered during his many earlier long-distance flights, how to achieve maximum range and payload and ever safer takeoffs. Cobham regarded aerial refueling as offering the best solution and having conducted elementary trials during the winter months of the tour years and attempted an unsuccessful non-stop flight to India, he set about forming a company to develop a practical system. As you might guess, that's another story and one well worth telling on another occasion. Most of the performers who entered Cobham's aerial big top have now shuffled off life's stage altogether. But one or two leading lights of those days are still above ground if no longer in the air. And their stories have actually contributed directly to this presentation. Harry Ward, the parachutist. Cecil Bebb, who matched Tyson's aerobatic prowess and who led the Avro cadet formation team. And Percy Allison, Cobham's ground engineer, who, with Hugh Johnson, was one of the first employees of Flight Refueling Limited. First two of them are now well into their 90s, and Percy, also of that age, died only a matter of months ago, at the very end of last year. In very recent correspondence, Cecil Bebb has suggested that the Flying Circus story should be permanently recorded, and he emphasized his request by adding, adding, don't delay, it's later than you think. How right he is. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this has been an attempt to bring you a little flavor of those heady, far-off days. What did it all achieve? Certainly not the wide and uncritical acceptance of aviation which Sir Alan had originally envisaged in his cherished aim of making Britain's skyways, Britain's highways. The evolution of civil aviation in this country progressed slowly but steadily along its own path, propelled by different commercial interests and at a pace controlled by other nations as well as our own. What the tours did unquestionably achieve was the generation of enormous excitement fun and an abundance of wonderful memories from a great many ordinary people. I think that an appropriate closing note might be found in comments made by Sir Alan himself in A Time to Fly, his very readable 
autobiography. First, he quoted with obvious and understandable pride a letter sent to him 40 years or more after the last national aviation display by that daring glider girl, the former Joan Meekin. She wrote, it was the excitement and freedom and comradeship and the sheer fun of it all that I adored. Living the life of a gypsy, moving off each day to a different town, everyone keen and happy. I loved the bustle and noise and the amusing chatter of the ground engineers, amusing chatter of ground engineers, and, <laughs> and gate, men, gate men as they worked. I loved the smell of the old Avros when the engines were being run and the sound of the latest jazz tunes floating across the playing field from the loudspeakers. Now, 40 years later, were it possible, I would join the display again tomorrow to experience the thrills of seeing Jeffrey Tyson flying upside down so low that the top of his rudder parted the long grass. That's perhaps a slight exaggeration, but maybe. <laughs> or Jock Mackay crazy flying, or Martin Hearn with his fascinating wing walking, or all the many wonderful things the pilots did to enthrall the public. You know, perhaps my old father was right after all. That sort of thing could well have enthralled an impressionable 17-month-old in North Staffordshire all those years ago. More prosaically and modestly, Sir Alan himself wrote, if I can claim to have done something useful with my life, this is chiefly because I did so much to bring so many people into contact with aviation while its heroic age still lasted. As some four million people paid to see the shows, and probably an equal number didn't, and with nearly a million actually taking to the skies in his aircraft, his proud claim is one with which we would all surely agree. Indeed, he was sufficiently and justifiably immodest as to claim the National Aviation Day campaign as perhaps my greatest single contribution to the cause of civil aviation. Could I just say before I close that I owe a great deal of thanks to Colin Craddus, the archivist at Cobham, who is sorting through the incredible collection of Cobham memorabilia and who has become an absolute nut. And if anybody wants to ask any questions, I'm certainly going to have Colin on the stage because he knows more of the answers than I do. To Ray Fox, who's put all the videos and the slides and done all that together. And to Philip Meeson and the Dart Group for staging this. Thank you. <laughs>